Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. Today is the last uh, sermon in our series called Messy, and there was all kinds of places I really wanted to go with this sermon, and I couldn't get to all the places I wanted to get, and I ended up this, spending, you know, my entire morning this morning, I let LaDawn uh, read the, the sermon, I always get her to read it, you know, uh, early Saturday morning, and she came back and she was really confused by it. That is not a good feeling as a pastor on the day of. So I ended up cutting a huge chunk off and rewriting a bit. And so that's why if you have a kid's activity book, it won't match up with the scriptures I'm actually preaching from today. That's not Jen Clausen's fault. That's mine. So anyway, I'm going to start by going back two weeks. And two weeks ago, I preached a series, the first one here on, on, on Messi. The first one was, you know, Messi and the sacrifice, you know, Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac. Now, after that sermon, I had two people ask me, they said, so are you saying that God never spoke to Abraham and asked him to sacrifice his son? And I'm like, oh boy, uh, obviously it was not as clear as I meant to be. Yes, the Bible says that God spoke to Abraham and asked him to sacrifice his son. The point of that message was that God could only ask Abraham to do that because there was no scriptures showing Abraham something different. God asked him to do something that he literally from the very beginning could not, was not going to allow Abraham to do. And, and part of the point, we're going to get into it again a bit more here today because we're going to talk about the cross and how God loves to work through mess. Um, but part of the problem, what's happened with some of these Bible stories is we like to make them neat. We like to make them clean and tidy and put them in a box. And when we do that, we miss out on so much of who God is and how he works in the world today. So we've turned the story of Abraham and Isaac into this cute little obedience story. It's just a story about doing whatever God tells you to do. But the fact of the matter is, if God just wanted to give us an obedience story, he wouldn't have asked Abraham to do something he wasn't going to let Abraham do. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, uh, there's lots of great obedience stories in the Bible. And yes, the Abraham and Isaac story includes this part about obedience. And no question, Abraham obeyed and he passed the test of faith and all that sort of stuff. But if God just wanted to give us a cute, neat, little obedience story, he could have asked Abraham to do something that was morally okay. Like, for example... Samuel, how many of you, I mean, you know, okay, just put up your hand. It's just more of an exercise thing, right? How many of you have heard of or know of the prophet Samuel? Okay, we have a low biblical literacy here across you. Okay, we're working on that. Hannah, Samuel's mom, Hannah, prays for a son. Oh God, give me a son, give me a son, give me a son. And if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And then God gives her a son. He answers her prayer, right? And then Hannah does what? She does something super, super hard. She brings her son to the temple and adopts him out to Eli to raise in the temple. Now, if, now, if God wanted just a cute little obedience story, and yes, obedience is a big part of that story, but if he wanted a, an obedience story in the Abraham and Isaac story, he could have asked Abraham to do something like that that was morally okay. 
Which is why Christians for centuries have looked at this story and said, there is something more going on. This is not a clean and neat story. Yes, there's obedience. Yes, Abraham has faith. He trusts that God is good. But there's more going on here. And part of that, a number of scholars have speculated, part of that is that part of God showing Abraham, I am not the kind of God who demands child sacrifice. And of course then, and this is going to lead into where today's uh, messy sermon is going, and that is many Christians have seen, and, and for good reason have seen, in the Abraham and Isaac story, they have seen a picture, a prophetic picture of the cross. And yes, I think, that, I think we can all agree that that is part of what's going on in the Abraham and Isaac story. But that raises its own further questions. And I think this is so key because it has to do how we view the cross has a lot to do with how our picture of God, how we're going to view God, and how we're going to view how God works in our lives today. And so I want to look at that. Yes, there's this picture. So one of the questions, and I've had this conversation a number of times with non-Christians over the years, is non-Christians will complain. They'll say, what kind of morality does your God have that child sacrifice, that he, would, that he would child sacrifice his own son to save you to, in order to be able to forgive you. And so that's a question out there. And of course, again, some of these are theoretical questions, but you're going to see at the end of this message how, how we view who God is deeply impacts the way how he's viewing, how he's moving in our lives today. So we're going to start off just with some facts and then we're going to dive in. I think you're going to be more thankful for the cross. And we're going to be more understanding a little bit of how God works in, in our lives today. But let's just start off with some facts that all Christians can agree on. There's somewhere around, literally good numbers, there's somewhere around 45,000 denomin Christian denominations in the world today. Okay? That's a lot. We disagree about a lot. But there are certain facts we can all agree on. Okay? I'm going to put those up on the screen uh, for everybody here and everybody who's home online, I just want to say hi to all of you onliners again. Facts about the cross that Christians across 45,000 denominations that we can agree on. We can all agree that God is holy and hates sin. Number two, we can all agree that we all deserve death because we all sin. These are really important core pieces of our Christian faith. We can all agree Jesus died and rose. That was fact. Physical person, God became man, died on a cross, physically rose from the grave. These are vitally important facts. And number four, we can agree that Jesus' death and resurrection were necessary, okay, for the cleansing of our sins and for the conquering of death. Now, after that, though, there have been many thousands of pages of books written through Christian history. And Christians cannot agree. We can agree on those basic facts. We can, but Christians cannot agree on how the cross fixes some of these things. We know that it does. C.S. Lewis wrote about this. We know that it works. But Christians have not been able to agree on how or why it works. And I'm not going to be able to answer that question for you today either because one of the things you're going to learn in, the, in this uh, message about Messi is that some of the things God does, and, and Caleb talked about it, we hadn't planned that before, are actually a mystery. They're actually a mystery. 
but how we think of it matters. So we're going to dig a little bit into the mess and the mystery, and then we're going to be able to step back and we'll be able to be thankful for what God has done. But how did Jesus' death, why is it that Jesus had to die? And let's first dig a little bit below the surface, and let's just, let's just explore the fact that this is a little bit messy. And let's start with the definition of what forgiveness is, okay? What is forgiveness? Well, you, if you look up in the dictionary the definition of forgiveness, you will find that the technical definition of forgiveness is to cancel a debt, okay? So, for example, if one of you or one of you online owed me, let's say, $10,000 and you couldn't pay it, if I forgave your debt, if I forgave your debt, that would mean I canceled your ten, the $10,000 you owe me. I take a loss. That's what forgiveness is. I take a loss. And I cancel the debt. I forgave the debt. You don't have to pay me $10,000. That's what forgiveness is. I don't get paid. I take a loss. I forgive. Now, what if you owe me $10,000 and you can't pay it? But another very generous person comes and pays me the $10,000 instead of you. Now that is actually not what forgiveness is because I don't take a loss. I have then received my $10,000. This person over here was very generous, okay? And you are thankful to that person because you didn't want Chris Dirksen mad at you for $10,000. Like what would that entail, Okay. Um, nothing very fearsome, let me tell you that. But anyway, um, you would be thankful. This other person did an act of generosity. They paid your $10,000 debt, but I got paid. I didn't forgive anything. I got paid. If I, if someone pays the bank, the money I owe the bank, the bank got paid. There's no forgiveness there. Forgiveness means canceling of a debt. Now, this is where we have to explore a little bit the mystery, and I think many times as Christians, and I think this is very helpful for us to do from time to time, I think we think about, the, we've, we've heard the story of the cross so often that some of us have just sat in church, we've never really thought it through, and I think it can be helpful for us too for what we're going to explore today a little bit. But if you think about the cross then, the question is, did Jesus pay for our sins, or did God forgive our sins? Now, just to put you a little bit at ease for just a moment, I think there's aspects of both going on here. I, I'm going to tell you right away, there is a lot of mystery in a lot of stuff God does. We could spend a couple of months exploring some of the mysteries Christians have tried to answer and haven't really been able to come up with. But my point is, we don't often think about this, and that's okay to an extent, okay, but the question is, did Jesus pay for our sins or did God forgive? And this is where sometimes non-Christians ask the question, well, why couldn't God just forgive? And the Christians will say, well, a debt needed to be paid. But then that isn't really forgiveness. Now, again, we're talking about God here and there is in the end going to be some forgiveness or there's going to be some mystery and there's going to be a little bit of both and. Okay? But this is going to impact deeply how we think about what happened at the cross. And this is where, over the centuries, Christians have come up with various theories. Now, you'll notice before, I had up on the, on the list there uh, some facts that all Christians can agree on based on Scripture. We can agree on some of those facts. But based on those facts, over the years, many Christians have, different Christians have come up with different theories of how Jesus' death on the cross, the mechanisms by which it works to save us. 
And we're just going to look at a couple of them, very brief. We're not going to look at all of them. We're just going to look at a couple of them. And again, we could spend weeks and weeks and months. But the reason we're going to look at them is because some of us have assumed some of these theories were facts. And as a result, our picture of God can become quite warped. So I want to just look at two different theories, and neither of these theories is fully true, and neither of them is fully false. I think all the different atonement theories, as they're called in seminaries, I think all the different atonement theories have elements of the truth, and I think none of them are able to fully capture the truth. But we're going to examine what your picture of God is, and what my picture of God is, and what our picture of God should be by looking at some of these theories. So the first theory we're going to look at here is the penal substitution theory. Now, this is one that is often in, you know, I'm very broadly, uh, you know, generalizing here, but often that stream of Christian theological thought of, that is called Calvinism or reform doctrine, often they're very strong on this, but penal substitution theory. Now, penal substitution theory, you're going to recognize it right away, is the theory that what happened at the cross is God needed to wrathfully punish somebody for sin. And so what happened at the cross is that Jesus went to the cross, and what happened at the cross is God the Father was actually in a rage. He was wrathfully punishing his own son so that he wouldn't have to punish us. So that's a theory. And definitely there's, a, there's elements there that are for sure true. So some of the things that are true there are, our sins deserve justice, and God definitely hates sin. Also it's true that Jesus' death on the cross was in some sense a payment. Look at Romans 6.23, this is a beautiful passage. For the wages of sin, it says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. Now, even there, it's like, okay, see, that's so obvious. The wages of sin is death. But again, Christians have thought about this very deeply over the centuries. And you say, why do they have to do that? Because it's just obvious that the wages of sin is death. Okay, well, in what way are the wages of sin death? Are they death in the sense that this is just what sin does to us? Or are they death in the sense that God must punish us? Let me share with you two stories, okay, before you get too bored. I want to turn this into a seminary class. Let's, 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 let's bring it. Okay, when I was about four years old, my mom, we had one of those old hot air popcorn makers, okay? And when I was about four years old, my mom was making some popcorn with that, and she told me as a little four-year-old boy, Chris, do not touch, you know, the clear plastic part on top. Don't touch that. Why, why should I not touch it? Because it's hot. So, of course, as a four-year-old boy, my mom telling me not to do that she, she should have known better. She should have said, Chris, you should touch that, right? That's what she should have said, and I probably wouldn't have done it. But she told me, don't touch that because it's hot. So, of course, the moment she turned away, I went, huh? And I, I can still remember it went, Now, I suffered a consequence. My fingertip hurt badly. It was burned, okay? And then my mom consoled me. Oh, Chris, I love you so much, and yada, 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 all that stuff, right? When you're four. Okay, but it wasn't. Now, what kind of, that's the wages. What were the wages of me touching the popcorn maker? The wages of me touching that hot popcorn maker was my fingertip got burned. I got an owie, okay? Now, I want you to keep the popcorn maker. That was a consequence. You touch a hot thing, you get burned. 
Let's leave the hot, pop, hot air popcorn maker on the shelf for just a moment. So you keep that there. I touch it, hot, burns my finger. Second story. I'm having a bath with my sister Julie. <laughs> I was 13 years. No, I was not. <laughs> Awkward. I was a young enough child that she had not yet spoken in her life. And we were in the bathroom playing together. Wow, I should not have shared this story. But anyway, I take the, the rubber ducky. We had this like little plastic yellow ducky. And I throw it out of the tub. I mean, nothing really super bad about that. My mom comes into the ba bathroom and says, uh, who threw the rubber ducky? Now, for some reason, my initial instinct is I'm in trouble. And this is a very easy situation because Julie does not speak yet. So I point at her and I say, Julie did it. Now, to my shock in that moment, Julie spoke some of her first words. Now, most children, their first word is like, da-da, or mama, or baba, and then we just interpret it however we want, but those are their first words. My sister Julie's first words were, no, crease. I was shocked. My mother was shocked. My shock more came from terror. Her shock came from anger. She said, Christopher, who threw the plastic ducky out of the bathtub? And I said, because I thought lightning surely can't strike twice, I said, Julie did it. And she said, no, crease. At which point my mother knew the truth of this story. And of course, my father then came in and I had to go out of the room. And of course, this being the old days, the early 80s, I got a spanking. Now, we're online. I am not condoning spanking, okay? But there was a consequence. Now, keeping the spanking thing just sort of loosely held there. Um, hot air popcorn maker. I touch it. There's a wage for that. There's a consequence. Hot meets finger. My mom didn't have to do anything. It was the consequences of sin, and I suffered. Plastic ducky. Throwing the plastic ducky did not hurt me. What my dad did to me after hurt me, okay? Not emotionally. Uh, I had a great upbringing, yada, yada. Really should change that illustration for the next time I do that. <laughs> right? But can you see how one, the wages of sin is death. Now you put that in Romans, and Christians have gone back and forth over this for centuries. Is the wages of sin death because that's what sin is? It's a poison? Or is the wages of sin death because God must punish us? Well, in the end, I'm pretty convinced there's a bit of both, a bit of both and in this. But again, how you look at this is going to really temper your perspective of God. And certain streams of Christianity really focus on the fact that God needs to, needs to punish in order to, and can you even call that forgiveness, but he needs to punish in order to let go of it. Other streams of Christianity focus more, and this would be our stream more, because this is more sort of the reform stream, even though there's certainly some both and here, but our stream of theology would definitely be outside of that kind of Calvinist reform theology, would see sin much more as its own destructive force. And yes, there is punishment mixed in there. It's not either or. There's definitely a both and. And certainly, we know that sacrifice is necessary. I mean, somehow the cross of Christ is 
hearkening back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So what was happening there? People say, look, a sacrifice is necessary for forgiveness. But again, in what sense? We can do a lot of things with this idea of sacrifice. Is it a sacrifice in the sense that imagine you have a, a person in the hospital. You're in the hospital and your heart is so diseased that you are about to die. Your heart is beyond healing. You need a new heart. You're about to die. And a person with a perfect heart comes in and says, I'm going to give my life for this other person. I'm going to give my perfect heart. Now, of course, they wouldn't allow that, I don't think, in our healthcare system today. But imagine this in the, you know, in the discussion of the heart is what Jesus did more like a person coming in with a perfect heart and saying, I give my heart for them. That's a sacrifice. And then by raising himself from the dead, conquering death overall. Okay, that's one way we could look at it. Or is Jesus' death a sacrifice to a father who must... Is it more like a whipping boy sort of idea? You know, there's these stories. I don't know if it actually ever happened, but there's these stories, you know, from medieval times. Uh, and maybe they're just fables. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe, or maybe it is a little bit historical. But where you'd have princes, and they would have a whipping boy. So if the prince did something, because no one should punish the prince... So someone's got to get punished, so you have a whipping boy, so at least you, you, someone's got to make a sacrifice. Someone's got to take the whipping. Do you see how your picture of the cross is going to really change how you think of God? Did God give his heart, or did God need to whip Jesus? What's going on? A lot of mystery here. Well, the first thing you need to understand is that the Old Testament, do you know that the Old Testament never tells us because we assume a lot of things. And again, there's, there's both and going on here, and there is mystery. But a lot of people just assume that the Old Testament sacrificial system, the animals, that God was pouring his wrath out on those animals because he just couldn't handle it. Do you know that nowhere does the Old Testament sacrificial system, uh, does the Old Testament or the New Testament describe God's wrath being put on those animals who were sacrificed? It's something we just assume. We, we know that the sacrifice was somehow necessary, but why? It does not tell us. In fact, you know that the Old Testament prophets regularly tell us that God never enjoyed sacrifices. Look at Psalm 50, just for one. We could look at a, a, a bunch of different ones, but Psalm 51, David says to God, you do not delight in sacrifice. God does not himself have some need. I, I, gotta, I gotta see some I, gotta, I need some kind of death or sacrifice in order. Now, they are, it's necessary somehow, but it's not God's heart that he, he needs that, that he loves that. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. In the same way, do you know that nowhere in Scripture, that's why we talk about these theories as being theories, not facts. We know that Jesus had to die. We know that we are all sinners and that we deserve death. We know that God hates sin, but do you know that it nowhere says in the, in, the, in the Bible, in the New Testament or Old Testament, that God poured out his wrath? We never get a picture of God hurting Jesus. In fact, the disciples, the apostles, were very clear when they preached the gospel. And I think this is where we as Christians, we actually, too much, we try to take away the mystery, rather than just sticking with how the Bible actually describes things and then leaving it at that. The apostles regularly, they were preaching the gospel all over in the book of Acts. And do you know that every time they preached the gospel, they never once accused God of killing Jesus or hurting Jesus. 
fact, they're very clear about who hurt Jesus. Let's just read. I'll just show you two passages. In Acts chapter 3, Peter says this to the Jews gathered at the temple. You, he says, look at that. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murder be released to you. You killed. The apostles are very clear about who killed. It's not God. Their picture is not that at the cross, God was attacking Jesus. He say, you killed the author of life, but God, what did God do? God did the raising, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now, of course, all of this was, you say, well, wasn't this part of God's plan? Absolutely. Did he take on flesh in, in, as Jesus, and did he allow himself? Did he walk into the trap? And did he allow those, like, wicked human beings to vent their wrath and sin on him? Absolutely he did. Acts chapter two, Peter preaching again, he says this, this man, that's Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And now look what it says, and you, with the help of wicked men. God is not wicked. God does not do wicked things. And you, with the, this is the gospel that the apostles preached. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Okay? So yes, there is a sense. There is no question that there are penalties for sin, that our sin deserves death. But are we meant to follow that to a place where we think of God as having to beat Jesus instead of beating us? That part goes beyond what the scripture tells us. Well, there's another theory. So parts of penal substitution, there's no question there are elements of truth there. But there's other theories. And another theory is called Christus Victor theory. And again, this one too is just a theory. None of these theories captures it all. But let me show you how there's a different way to look at what God did. How many of you have ever seen the Chronicles of Narnia movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Just put your hand up. Okay. How many of you or have read the book? Okay, it's based on C.S. Lewis's book. Okay, so C.S. Lewis wrote that story as a way of exemplifying the historical view of the cross called Christus Victor. Now, what happens in one of the climactic scenes of that story, whether the movie or the book? Who kills Aslan? Is it God the Father who kills Aslan? Or does Aslan, who represents Jesus, what does he do? He walks to the witch and gives himself up to her. And she kills him, she and her evil hordes. And then after that, by him dying, he then rises from the dead and breaks the power of the witch. Now, Christus Victor, again, is just a theory. It does not fully capture all of who God is and all of what happened at the cross, but that's a very different way of looking at the cross, isn't it? And people who, who uh, ascribe that, that stream of Christian thought historically, of which C.S. Lewis is a part, it would certainly be our more central view. No one of these theories captures all of it. We think all of the theories have their place in the whole thing, but Christus Victor would be more our stream of theology as well here at Crossview. There, by the way, there's a reason our name is Crossview. Because we really believe the climax of God's revelation. The Old Testament is this 
is this inspired, authoritative collection of writings that leads us to Jesus. And then what do we find in the Gospels? The Gospels, we have Jesus revealed to us. And what do the Gospels focus on? Jesus was 33 years on the earth. Do you know that the vast majority of all four Gospels is focused on one week of that 33-year life? It's the week leading up to the, to the crucifixion and then the resurrection. That's the vast majority of the Gospels. So we have the Old Testament leading us up to Jesus. Then we have the Gospels focusing on us on the cross. And at the cross, we have this incredible revelation. What is God like? The cross wasn't just one piece of a bunch of different things God is. At the cross, the Gospel of John says that when Jesus was lifted up, that's when he was most glorified. At the cross, we see what God is like. That's life-transforming. Life transforming, when we think about it, not only for gratitude in terms of what he's done for us, but in terms of how we also live our lives. Now, passages that theologians like, that are in the Christus Victor stream of theology more, some passages, you know, there's different passages they would point to, but 1 Corinthians 2 would be one. Verse 7, now, no, we declare God's wisdom, by the way, a mystery. There's so much stuff about God becoming a man and Jesus at the cross that is a mystery. We can't fully explain it. We can't fully understand it. That has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Now look what it says next. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I want you to notice again in this passage, God is not pictured as the one who is killing Jesus. It's the rulers of this age. And in this passage, we have this idea that they have, been, they have walked into God's trap. By killing Jesus was their own undoing. That what Jesus did on the cross was actually sacrifice in the sense of taking a bullet. The evil one had fired his bullet of sin and death at humanity. And at the cross, Jesus stepped in front of the bullet. He wasn't stepping in front of God the Father's fists. He was stepping in front of the bullet of sin and death, taking it for humanity. And then when he rose from the grave, conquering sin and death forever. Can you see how your picture of what happened at the cross, and again, neither of these pictures is totally wrong. Neither of these pictures fully captures it. Pictures can only give us a glimpse. But the picture you focus on of who God the Father is is going to radically change the way you live your Christian life, the way you relate to him, and the way you're able to see how God works in messy life today. Here at Crossview, we are, we're not of this stream, and there's many wonderful godly men and women in the Calvinist reformed stream of theology, many wonderful godly men and women. But that's not, that's not our stream of theology. There's another historic stream of theology. We can get into all kinds of names and titles. And I think in the, in the New Year, it'd be good to, to show you some of that, the context kind of for who we are, things like Arminian and Anabaptist and things like that. We can look at some of those things. What do those things mean historically? How have Christians viewed the cross in the scriptures and all of that. But in our stream of theology, when we look at who the Father is at the cross, we want to see how did Jesus describe the Father's heart towards sinners? Because that's where we need to focus. 
So what does Jesus teach us is the Father's heart towards sinners. And I think there's a number of places in the Gospels where he speaks about it. One of them is the parable of the prodigal son. In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus shows us the Father's heart towards sinners. What happens in the parable of the prodigal son? Well, the prodigal son willfully sins against the father, willfully, takes the inheritance and runs, leaves the father's house, and goes willfully to live sinfully and foolishly. Now, while the prodigal son is out wasting the father's inheritance and living in rebellion to his father, he suffers. Now, does he in that parable suffer because the father is angrily punishing him? Or does he suffer primarily? And again, not that there is no such a thing as punishment from God. There is. But in this parable, how does the prod- why does the prodigal son primarily suffer? He suffers because his decisions are foolish and they cause him to suffer. Which is so true of what sin does to us. And when he finally comes to his senses, the father patiently has been waiting for him, just waiting for him to come to the end of his rope. The father loves him. Now when he comes home, expecting the father to reject him, what is the father's heart towards the prodigal son? Does he say, come here, I first need to beat you, and then I can hug you? Or, I first need to attack one of the servants, or one of our other kids, and then I'll be able to forgive you. By the way, this is Jesus' own parable. It's not my parable. What does a father do? He doesn't do any of that. He runs. By the way, this was scandalous. It's scandalous to us today. It was scandalous 2,000 years ago. God is too holy and too awesome to run to a sinner. Not according to Jesus. According to Jesus, the father runs out to the son, throws a cloak around him, and says, welcome home. That's actually the Father's heart. And when you picture the cross, when you picture what the Father is doing while Jesus is on the cross, we don't know all of it, and there's some mystery, and there is wrath on sin, and there is, you know, some of these other things. There's, there's elements here we don't understand, but what is our primary picture? He is a Father. And he loves us. So I want to review a couple of the facts again, just to make sure that we're not confused. The wonderful facts of the cross. And then we'll just finish with a final thought. The wonderful facts of the cross. First of all, God is holy and hates sin, no question. But God is love and loves sinners, no question. We all deserve death because we all sin. But number four, Jesus took the consequences of our sin on himself at the cross so that we can be delivered from sin and death. Now, when you understand this, when you understand that the cross is not just one thing God did out of many, but that the cross is in many ways a central revelation of what God is like and who he is, not just one thing. I think too often as Christians, we put the cross, here's all these different things God does. And yes, God does many things in many ways. But the cross is not just another thing that God did. It is a climactic scene in the Bible that the Bible itself is all leading us up to, the cross and the resurrection. 
When you realize that the cross is Jesus at the, in some ways, the peak of his glory, the gospel of John points us, then you realize a few things. First of all, how beautiful, how beautiful is God's heart toward us. This is the God who, how does he want to rescue people? Through forcing people or through giving of himself. It's actually really incredible. But there's another thing here. The cross was the most shameful, scandalous, disgusting way to die in the Roman Empire and, you know, really in most of human history. It's horrific. And everybody who saw Jesus on that cross was absolutely convinced that was, the, that, was the, that was such a shameful way for Jesus to die. Clearly, God was not in that. He, we, thought he was, we thought he was the Messiah, but clearly he can't be because that's not how God works. And then, oh, that's actually exactly how God works. I think we in the West have gotten this idea that it's only God's will if it's clean and neat. If it's all clean and neat, oh, God must be blessing this, right? It's clean and neat, God's blessing. If it's messy, God's not in that. What if our view of things is completely upside down? What if God's plans are usually really messy? And what if in the midst of that horrific mess, what we often view as losing is actually God winning? if we'll let him. And that's what, I think is, that's what I think is so beautiful with the cross. And that's a big part of the reason why we're called Crossview. The cross is messy, but God is beautiful. So I did have a lot of questions after I read Chris's message. It's true. And he did, <laughs> sorry, babe, <laughs> spend the rest of the morning um, fixing, them. fixing them. Yes, so thank you. Um, the revised version was much better. <laughs> um, even though you didn't give us a lot of concrete answers, unfortunately, there's there still a lot not. of mess. Yeah. What kind of pastor are you? Don't know a lot. Hmm. <laughs> but it is kind of nice, right, to know that theologians have wrestled with these same questions through the centuries, right? And there are some streams of thought that we can um, we can focus on, and and they have kind of paved the way for us. Um, even though we can't have clarity when it comes to why Jesus had to die for us, we can have that certainty, like in the prodigal son story, that God loves us. He's our good, caring father. And we don't have to feel that shame for our sins. Confess and repent, absolutely. But how we live after that is very much affected by our view of God. So my role always is to bring it back to the tangible. How are we going to take this message and live it out, right? So if we take the stream of thought that God is a wrathful God, that, um, that we have to be punished for our sins, you know what, we're going to confess, but we're going to continue to live in that guilt. And we're going to continue to feel like nothing we do is ever quite good enough, right? Um, because the truth is we're all human and we're sinful and we'll never be perfect in this world. So then really we never can live up to, uh, to that standard that God might be setting. And that's heavy. It's burdensome. Um, and if we live that way, that's not appealing to other people, right? And it's actually just not true about God. And so let's not live that way. Let's not take that message and, and walk out of here with that heaviness. Let's walk out um, believing, like the Bible says, that our God is loving and gracious and so merciful and forgiving um, then our response to life 
can be joy. Our response to God dying for us can be serving him out of delight and gratitude rather than duty, right? Um, and that's uh, a kind of Christianity that's contagious. And that is the true nature of God. That's, we can know that from the Bible. So uh, just, uh, just in summary, while our human minds really don't like ambiguity, we don't really like the unknown and having questions about why did Christ die for us, um, we have to just tell our heads it's a mystery and we're not going to know till heaven. We have to have that childlike faith and just trust that God's good, he's got it in control, and we can thank him for that. The cross is messy, but God is beautiful. So I'm going to pray and then just wait for us to dismiss you. Heavenly Father, we just come before you with that, those childlike hearts, and we say thank you so much for giving your son to die for us so that when we believe in you, all we have to do is believe in you, and then we get eternal life. And what a great gift. Thank you for taking that bullet for us, and thank you for loving us in such a gracious way. Help us to walk out of here and to live um, in an expression of gratitude for what you did for us. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.